Hello and welcome to the 15th episode of Outside the Screen, a podcast all about screens in the lives of children and families. I'm law professor and child rights advocate Liz Hansley. And I'm Dr. Kim Lee, child psychiatrist and stand-up comedian. And we're bringing you the podcast because we've got to do it. I've got to stay on top of this stuff. I've got to stay on top of the research. And it's a lovely way to share it with you at home. Yeah. And we really hope that it helps. What have we got lined up for this episode, Liz? Today on the show, you're going to hear a review of the Angry Birds movie and a chat between Kim and me about parent responsibility. But first up, we've got... Paper Round, our regular segment where we look at the research that's coming out and demystify it so that you can better inform your family's decisions about how you engage with screens. Today, we're discussing some research out of Brazil about early childhood. What is the impact of screen exposure on cognitive development? We love those brain studies. So stay tuned. As Kim said, today in Paper Round, we're looking at some research out of Brazil about cognitive development in early childhood. Kim, why did they do this research? We all love a good brain study. We Mm. are only fascinated and care about what actually happens to our brain and ultimately how it affects our lives. Yep. Okay. So how did they do this study? Did they stick electrodes to people's brains or anything like that? No, much less invasive. They conducted a series of tests using researchers and psychologists. So it was a questionnaire, basically? Yes. Okay. And um, what they find? Essentially, the child's development, their brain ability, is determined by a few factors. Mm-hmm. So the level of education of the mother, uh-huh. whether the baby was born prematurely, mm-hmm. also whether they were a girl, so girls always score higher. Mm-hmm and the actual screen time exposure. Okay. So if your child has more than two hours of screen exposure, then they're going to be a couple of points behind on these scales. Mm. That's two hours a day? Two hours a day. And these are young children we're talking about, aren't we? Yes. Like two and three-year-olds? Yeah, 18 months. 18 months, okay, so really little. So we've got 18-month-olds in this group who have more than two hours a day screen use, and they're being affected clearly in their cognitive development, according to the outcome of this study. So um, anything surprising about that finding? No. 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 I had heard the thing about the mother's level of education. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not at all surprising. It is intuitive to say that a more informed and confident carer would have a positive impact on the child's development. What else was that? Whether it's a girl, okay, so that makes a difference. Yeah, that was a huge one. Six yeah. points difference between right. genders. Wow, okay. And what was the second one again? Prematurity. Okay, so yeah, prematurity is obviously, a, that's intuitive as well, isn't it, that that would have an impact on cognitive development. Okay, so do you have any reservations about this finding? No. I mean, how much research do we need to convince parents on changing their habits and behaviours in their family? Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. It, it's really complex, right? Yeah, it is. It, it is very complex. And nobody wants to put excessive pressure on parents or to make their lives more difficult or make them feel guilty or shamed or anything like that. But at the same time, there's that message that says, this is going to be worth the effort. This is going to pay off. It's hard, but it's going to pay off. So how we get that message out? Um, mm. Yeah, watch this space. But obviously yeah. our, our listeners are here and they're interested. So that's a really yep. good start. Okay, so do you think there are dangers of 
finding like this being distorted or oversimplified or you know, how do you think it's going to play out in the broader social conversation? I don't think any of these studies can really be oversimplified. They can only really test certain aspects accurately mm. at a time. In terms of my own practice, I often ask in their developmental history, because I'm a child psychiatrist, you know, how was the pregnancy? Mm-hmm. Was the child at term or premature? Yeah, sure. And some parents will go, oh, okay, um, how come you ask that question? Hmm. And I'll explain it to them. And now I can say, look, they've done tests mm. on kids who were premature, who um, score lower on these tests. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean it's a life sentence or anything like that. It just no. means that, okay, perhaps if your child was born premature, we also know that the screen time can also affect by a number of points on the mm. cognitive scale. Mm. So perhaps we need to invest a little bit more time for your child in this situation, in this environment to help them catch up. Yeah. Yeah. And again, we heard that word factors. And I think that's something that so often gets lost. And that's why I like to keep bringing it up again, because people talk about these things and often they're reported in the media or discussed in public conversations as if, oh, if you have a premature child, that child is going to be blah. Or or if you have a girl or a boy, that, that child is going to be blah. But they're just factors and they're part of a complex picture. A lot of these things are things you can work on and and improve and correct for. You just need to be aware of them. And that's the best use of this kind of research, I think, is to just know what to look out for rather than, you know, as you say, it's not a life sentence. It's not a death sentence. It's just a signpost for what you need to watch for. So, yeah, you've mentioned how it would affect your practice as a psychiatrist. What about can it inform parenting or caring for children? What should parents take away from this? Oh, definitely. It reinforces the pre-existing guidelines, you know, restricting or not even giving your child at a very young age any screen time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if there is, make sure it's limited and supervised. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And think about the content as well. There seems to be pretty good evidence for that. Maybe we can come back to that in a future episode. Well, thanks for that discussion. Very enlightening as always, Kim. And we'll move on to the next segment. Well, there were a couple of pretty interesting tips from Kim about why it's so important to manage screen time for very young children. The paper was by Louisa Gasto and nine colleagues. Normally I mention them all, but I'm not going to read out all the names today. And the title is Screen Time Implications for Early Childhood Cognitive Development. It was published in the journal Early Human Development and full details are in the show notes. And now it's time for our movie review and Beatrice is going to tell us why the Angry Birds movie is recommended for ages 8 and up. Hi, I'm Beatrice and I'm here with some information from the CMA review of the Angry Birds movie. I'll tell you what the movie is about and what elements led the reviewers to recommend the film for children aged 8 and up, as well as some suggestions for things in the movie you might want to discuss with your kids. On Bird Island, most of the birds are peaceful and happy. However, Brad has an anger problem and doesn't get along with the other birds. After an angry incident, a judge sends Red to an anger management class with Chuck, who is constantly spitting, and Bomb, who has an explosive anger problem. One day, when a group of pigs visits Bird Island, Brad and his angry friends are the only birds who are skeptical of the pig's intentions. 
the three angry birds must work together to figure out what the pigs are up to and then save the bird colony from the pigs' evil plan. Themes covered include kidnapping, crime, separation from parents, anger management, social exclusion, and acceptance. There is frequent cartoon violence shown throughout the film that varies from one-on-one physical fighting to larger-scale violence, such as bombing houses and villages. In fact, there are lots of bombs and explosions throughout the film. The pigs carry TNT and use it to blow up the bird's village. Then the birds use TNT to blow up the pig's town. No one dies from these explosions, but those caught in the explosions are shown to have a few cuts and bruises. There are also threats against the eggs, which are depicted as the babies of the bird community. When the pigs plan to cook the eggs in a large vat, the eggs or babies are shown dangling above the vat. Perhaps of greatest concern, the film shows violence as a good problem-solving strategy. For example, when the pigs steal the birds' eggs, the birds respond by attacking the pigs. In addition to the violent scenes just described, there are some scenes in this movie that could scare or disturb children under the age of five, or even some children between five and eight, including the following. Frequent slapstick-style falls and injuries that may scare young children, although older children will likely find these scenes funny. For example, in the opening scenes, Red falls off a cliff and bounces off jagged rocks and tree branches. A baby bird is frightened of Red dressed as a scary clown. Bomb explodes when he gets angry. And although no one gets hurt when this happens, the explosions may be scary for some children. It is revealed that Red does not have any parents and he's sad and alone because no one wants to be friends with him. The other birds tease Red and call him eyebrows. The pigs steal all of the birds' eggs, which are again depicted as unhatched babies. When the birds discover this, all of the parents are very sad and upset. There is a very large explosion and everyone thinks that bread and the eggs are dead. It is revealed later that they are okay. As the entire movie is based on a game series and may act as a marketing tool for the game and any associated merchandise, we can't really say there isn't any product placement. There are also some sexual references, including where a group of female birds flutter their eyelashes and act flirtatiously. In the pigs both, there is a book called Fifty Shades of Green. A pig sticks plungers on his chest and pretends to have breasts. Mighty Eagle spies on female birds through his binoculars, and Chuck, while making thrusting motions, suggests that the ladies should, quote, get busy laying some eggs tonight. There is some use of substances in this movie, including alcohol consumption and the inhalation of helium from balloons. The Angry Birds movie tells the story of the pigs and the birds 
prior to the events that occur in the game. Fans of the game are likely to enjoy the movie as it includes references to many familiar characters and events. The movie shows what it feels like to be an outsider. The main positive messages are that we should accept others for their differences and that working together can help us to solve a problem. Values in this movie that parents may wish to reinforce with their children include bravery and teamwork. The movie does, however, send some mixed messages about violence as an appropriate way to resolve conflict. Parents may wish to discuss this with children. The Angry Birds movie is available on a number of different streaming platforms, and the CMA reviewers recommend it for children aged 8 and up, parental guidance for 6 and 7-year-olds due to animated violence, crude human and sexual references, for children under 6, best to find another movie. There is more detailed review of these and hundreds of other movies on the CMA website. And when Beatrice talks about the CMA website, that's www.childrenandmedia.org.au. You can find the reviews by clicking on the Movie Reviews tab. Then you can sort the list or search by title alphabetically, by age suitability, by classification or by date added. All of the reviews are prepared by people with training in child development and they cover every G and PG title released in Australian cinemas since 2002, as well as selected M-rated movies and some pre-2002 ones that are available on streaming services. The website also has reviews of game-style apps and apps that may appeal to young children. Again, it's www.childrenandmedia.org.au. You might also like to join the CMA Facebook community, facebook.com forward slash Australian Council on Children in the Media, all one word. More details later on how to keep in touch and give feedback. And now it's time to have a chat about a parenting issue. Liz and I are going to shoot the breeze about cybersecurity and parent responsibility, or rather supporting responsibilised parents. When we were looking for articles for this set of episodes, there was one that caught my eye, even though it's not the usual kind of research we talk about in Paper Round. These researchers didn't study any kind of effect on children from screen use. Rather, they surveyed parents to find out what sources of cybersecurity information would be most trusted and most acceptable to them. Now, cybersecurity, it's worth just pausing to explain what they mean by that. Cybersecurity is basically about privacy and the security of the device that you're working on. So cyber safety is something else again. Cyber safety is where you start thinking about bullying and predators and undesirable content, that kind of stuff. So that's more about the experience that you have as a user, whereas cybersecurity is about the security of the device that you're working on. What was it that caught your eye, Liz? Well, that idea of responsabilization, uh, I hadn't heard that word before, but I have been interested in the idea of parental responsibility for a really long time. It's you know, really central to all the work I've been doing on children and media. So I'm really interested in thinking more deeply all the time about you know, what parental responsibility means, why we think it's a good thing. 
Isn't it a good thing? Well, yeah, of course it is. Nobody would argue against parental responsibility. The question to me really is how we support parents. We put the responsibility on them, but that doesn't mean that we just leave them on their own. We really need to support the people that we make responsible for things and parental responsibility is no different. So that's why I had to read this article because that's what the article's about, which is how we support parents when we responsibilise them. So coming back to the question of why it's such a powerful idea and why it's one that's very hard to argue against, a really strong reason is neoliberal logic, which has been very fashionable in Western society and probably other parts of the world as well in the last 30 years or so, which gives a strong emphasis to personal responsibility in all areas of life. And it seems especially strong in parenting because it attaches to a general conception of families as little islands where parents rule and most of what they do is nobody else's business. So it really reinforces that idea of individualism. But on the other hand, parents generally have a very strong motivation to do their job well and to be seen to be doing it well because nobody wants to be called a bad parent. And so we want the opportunity to do the things that make us a good parent. So parents do tend to sort of buy into that idea of I'm responsible, let me do it, leave it up to me because those are the things that make us a good parent and everybody wants to be a good parent and be recognised as a good parent. So that includes things like making choices for our children, protecting them, keeping them safe. We want to take on that responsibility because we want it to be done right and, and we trust ourselves to do it right in a way we probably wouldn't trust anybody else as much. But also we want to know that that we're doing the things that that are required of us to make us a good parent. So to get the opportunity to make those choices, give the protection, keep children safe, we need to be given responsibility. How does the article's treatment of responsibility sit with your prior thinking about it? Well, I was quite excited really to see it vindicated my own prior thinking. I had always been critical of the model of responsibility because usually If you look at other areas of life, if we make one person or group responsible for something, we have some kind of system of accountability or we trust them to do the job well that we're making them responsible for because if they don't, they'll suffer some kind of harm. And the ideas in the paper overlapped with that second point where the author said, and I quote, Responsibilization is viable where a failure to manage the risk does not affect others in the person's community. So it comes back to that idea of what's going to be the harm if somebody doesn't do what they're supposed to do, that they're responsible for doing. So it's kind of like the flip side of my second point, you know, where I said, if we make people responsible, then normally we assume that they'll do the right job because they'll suffer some kind of harm because they have an intrinsic interest in doing it right. And then what these researchers are saying is the flip side, they're saying failure to do the right thing won't affect others in the person's community. So it brings in that idea of what happens if the person we give the responsibility to fails in some way and thinking about the harm that might come from that. Where did they take that idea in the paper? Well, unfortunately, they didn't really take it anywhere because they concentrated on the first condition of viability. The one that I just read out was the second condition of viability of responsabilization. And the first condition is that risk management activities require only ubiquitous skills. Ubiquitous is a big word. What it means is skills that everybody has, skills that are found everywhere. 
So that's the one that they really ran with. And, and it's interesting in itself. So um, I was disappointed that they didn't run with the idea that I found most interesting, but that's just me. And, and what they've observed here is that parents generally don't have the skills needed to teach their children about cybersecurity. And they did this study to figure out where they could get those skills or where they would want to get them. Both of those things, in fact, where they can and where they would want to get them. And what did the researchers find? Well, look, it seems like a very UK-focused finding because what they found was that these people called support or family liaison workers are the best source of that information. And I'll just read out the description of who they are. These are professionals who provide support, guidance and assistance to families in challenging circumstances or during significant events. These individuals are typically employed within various sectors such as law enforcement agencies, social services or educational institutions to act as a vital link between families and the relevant organisations or authorities. So I can't really think of an equivalent role here in Australia. Can you think of anything, Kim, that would yeah. fit that description? Yeah, Yeah, they're cyber safety experts. The e-safety commissioner gives all these badges to people mm. who have done their training program. Okay, right. Yeah. But these are people who absolutely specialise in cyber safety and they might not know terribly much about anything else. They might or might not. They're not required to have other kinds of knowledge, whereas the people that are being talked about in this paper sound more like sort of social workers who work in a government agency and come into contact with parents, you know, as they say in, in this description, in challenging circumstances or during significant events. And then what the authors are arguing is, we should teach these people about cybersecurity and use them as a source of cyber safety right. or cybersecurity information. In terms of families and the average uh, child, yeah, I'm not really sure whether that exists. They sound a little bit more like kind of child health nurses or something like that. That you know, they're people who are just there to generally support families in particular situations. And the idea that these authors are putting forward is that these people who you know are already in systems where they're coming into regular contact with families, could learn from cybersecurity academics and pass that knowledge on as part of their work. Did the proposal seem realistic to you? Well, look, it was a nice idea, but no, it doesn't seem realistic to me. Um, so thanks for the Dorothy Dix question. They note the need for funding, which is obviously always going to be an issue with this kind of thing. You'd hope that any sensible government would find the money to do something useful in relation to cybersecurity and children, but you know that's always going to be an issue. Apparently, they already have difficulty recruiting these people, and they, they make the suggestion that, well, if they have this extra role of cybersecurity, that might attract more people to the job, and that might well be true. There might be people out there who would love to be working in cybersecurity and they're willing to take on all the other aspects of one of these jobs so they get to do that. So maybe that would help on reflection. They also talk about the need to manage parental expectations, that anybody who is dealing with families and supporting them can only do so much and that there might be a tendency to get unrealistic expectations as to what they can do. Now, I'm also not sure all families have contact with these people because they do say they give assistance to families in challenging circumstances and during significant events. So if you're not in challenging circumstances, you're not having a significant event, then how do you find these people or how do they find you? I'm not sure. I'm also, as an academic myself, not sure what the academic's motivations would be in providing this information or providing this training to these people. But um, you know, maybe these people are all going to be doing a little master's degree or something and the government's going to pay them to do it and 
that's good for universities. I'm not sure. So that that's my reaction to it. It's great to see that someone's thinking about this and thinking so hard about it. Have my reservations about this particular outcome, though. Oh, you never know. They might be like us and doing it out of the goodness of their heart. Yeah. Yeah, they mm. might. So Unlikely, given the current state of the university sector, but that's a conversation for another day. Should the researchers have focused more on the second condition, perhaps, the one that says there should be no risk of harm to others if you responsibilise someone? Well, I would be the last one to want to tell another academic what they should be focusing on, (laughs) but I personally, as I indicated before, would have been fascinated to see that. What I do find really fascinating about this whole area, this question of parental responsibility, is that the equation is quite complicated when it comes to parents and children because that second condition of viability talks about no risk of harm to others. Now, you know, if you responsibilise parents and they don't do their job, for whatever reason, then it's the children who get harmed. So there is actually a risk of harm to somebody. But the parent-child relationship is a different kind of relationship to just about anything else, and that parents do habitually put their kids before them, and they do habitually care about harm to the kids more than harm to themselves. So I guess you'd need to look at the equation with that in mind. The parents' interests nearly always completely overlap with children's interests so it's not so much harm to another person it's harm to (laughs) to oneself if you know what I mean so there's some interesting stuff to think through there any final thoughts Liz well I was waiting for these authors to mention the fact that governments who are signatories to the convention on the rights of the child which is every government in the world except the US has an obligation to support parents in pursuing their children's rights. So I'm still as intrigued as ever by the idea of parental responsibility and I'll keep on thinking about what it means and how it works. Well, that's about all we have time for today. Yes, that's a wrap for episode 15. We'd really love to have your feedback, so please get in touch either through Facebook or Instagram. Just search for Outside the Screen Pod, all one word, or you can email us at outsidethescreenpod at gmail.com. You can also catch up on all things gaming addiction on my website, cgiclinic.com, or even book an appointment for me to assess your child. Or if you really like us, you can help by becoming a subscriber on Substack. Details are in the show notes, along with a range of further info about the things we've been discussing. We'd also love it if you could spread the word about the podcast among your friends and colleagues. And finally, you can rate and review us on your listening platform to make it easier for others to find us. And And this this has been been the team from Outside the Screen. See you next week.